A corporation doesn't have to feed a family. A corporation cannot be unemployed. A corporation can't get carpal tunnel syndrome, heart disease, brain tumors, or hemorrhoids. A corporation is set up with one motive, and that is not to judge who's right or fair. A corporation's only goal is making money. That's why a corporation doesn't care. A corporation can never sense the breeze upon its skin, never know what it's like to miss a meal. A corporation doesn't have to worry, because a corporation cannot feel. A corporation can never know the beauty. It cannot wake up in a grove of ancient trees. It only sees a hundred thousand dollars and some mill jobs it can ship out overseas. A corporation can't care for a child sickened by a toxic oil spill. A corporation only stands to profit from interest on the loan for the hospital bill. A corporation never goes to funerals of any victims who may die along the way. A corporation cannot feel remorse. A corporation never really has to pay. A corporation doesn't have a mouth, but it often has many a mouthpiece. A corporation cannot shoot a gun, but it can employ an army of police. A corporation can never go to prison, no matter how horrible the crime. But a corporation can send lobbyists to Congress to make sure that more of us are doing time. A corporation doesn't feel the pain of a child raised by a TV set. And the corporations will just get bailed out if their clients fall too deeply into debt. Corporations can't be routed up and shot. A corporation can't be tortured through the night. A corporation can't be blown up by an IED. A corporation cannot even see the sight. A corporation can't be killed by a tsunami. A corporation cannot drown beneath the tide. A corporation doesn't care who wins the war If they can just sell weapons to both sides A corporation exists only to make money A corporation never questions why A corporation doesn't suffer consequences Because a corporation doesn't live and doesn't die A corporation doesn't have to feed a family And that was David Rovick singing, Corporations Are People Too. Greetings and welcome to Howie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics, inspired by Bernie Sanders, Howie Hawkins, Angela Walker, progressive and radical activism, and the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. 
if you want to send me a message or check out back episodes of Howie 2020 or the predecessor Bernie 2020, just go to Bernie-2020.com. There you'll also find some links on the right-hand side to make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast and all my podcast projects free and independent. First up is a story by David Sirota. This is published at the Daily Poster, which is a new news organization started by David Sirota. Two weeks ago, Joe Biden rightly received praise for creating policy task forces that released a package of progressive legislative initiatives. The proposals augmented Biden's previous legislative initiatives to change corporate behavior. The task forces were meant to unify the Democratic Party after the primary, and the recommendations were blared all over the world in glowing headlines, promising an era of progressive change under a Biden administration. Then this past Monday, Biden told his Wall Street donors that actually he's not proposing any new legislation to rein in corporate power or change corporate behavior. And this was reported exactly nowhere, even as his campaign blasted it out to the National Press Corps. You don't have to believe me. You can click here to read the full pool report, which is a link You can find this at dailyposter.com if you want to pursue the extra information in the links in this story. And the title is Biden just made a big promise to his Wall Street donors. So you don't have to believe me. You can click here to read the full pool report that the Biden campaign distributed to the press after his teleconference fundraiser. That event was headlined by John Gray, a top executive at the Blackstone Group, which is a private equity behemoth at the center of the climate, health care, housing, and pension crises. Blackstone executives had already donated 130000 to the Biden campaign and 350000 to a super PAC supporting him. Here's the relevant section reviewing what Biden said. Second question, again, from Mr. Gray, who noted that there are, quote, a bunch of business leaders on the line. What do you think is essential to get this economy rolling again? I come from the corporate state of America, many of you incorporated here, said Mr. Biden, referencing Delaware. It used to be that corporate America had a sense of responsibility beyond just CEO salaries and shareholders. Corporate America has to change its ways. It's not going to require legislation. I'm not proposing any. We've got to think about how we deal people back in. There's an obvious contradiction here. Before making these comments, Biden had previously promised to pass legislative initiatives to change corporate behavior on everything from climate change to tax policy. He has an entire section of his website outlining promises to pass corporate accountability legislation. He has received praise for these kinds of promises. But now he's telling his donors they can rest assured that legislation to change corporate behavior is not forthcoming. Indeed, read Biden's comment again, quote, It's not going to require legislation. I'm not proposing any. Now, sure, you can try to write this off as just another gaffe, good old Joe being good old Joe. 
but it's part of a pattern. Biden had previously promised his wealthy donors that if he is elected, quote, nothing would fundamentally change. He insisted that we don't need a political revolution in America because that might, quote, disrupt everything. That was in the halcyon days before the coronavirus. So maybe you can try to write off all that rhetoric as pre-pandemic malarkey. However, now we're in the middle of multiple emergencies when real change is so obviously and desperately needed. And when lawmakers like Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both have legislation already drafted that would start challenging corporate power. And yet, at a time when private health insurance companies are making a jackpot off of a pandemic, and oil companies are creating a climate crisis that threatens the planet's ecosystem, the Democratic nominee is doubling down, literally telling his donors that he is, quote, not proposing any legislation to change corporate America. It's breathtaking. I've said before and will say again for those who need to hear it again. I personally believe Donald Trump must be defeated because he is actively making so many terrible crises so much worse. However, I agree with Princeton professor and MSNBC contributor Eddie Gloud Jr., who tweeted, quote, Let me be clear. If I am alive in November, I plan to vote for Joe Biden. That does not mean that until then I have lost all my critical faculties. I don't approach politics like a sports fan. In his comment to donors yesterday, Biden did not just make a mockery of his own task forces and all their good work. He made clear that if he wins, and if progressives then pull a 2009 by once again standing down and deferring to the new Democratic president, then we should expect that indeed nothing will fundamentally change. And if nothing fundamentally changes during the next Democratic administration, it's a good bet that everything will fundamentally change for the worse in our economy, our society, our politics, and our world. Next up is a piece written by Caitlin Johnstone, and you can find this at caitlinjohnstone.substack.com. Journalist Glenn Greenwald has made major waves throughout mainstream and alternative media by resigning from The Intercept, an outlet he co-founded in 2014, with the stated mission of holding power to account with the power of unrestricted journalism. Greenwald says he resigned because Intercept editors refused to let him publish an article he'd been working on about the mass media's role in covering up the Hunter Biden October surprise, and obfuscating its nature, which he says is a violation of the conditions in his contract for editorial freedom. He also published part of the email exchanges he'd been having with the editors in the lead-up to submitting his notice of resignation. The email exchanges make it fairly clear that Intercept editors were holding Greenwald's analysis of the allegations against Joe Biden and his family to a much higher evidentiary standard than they hold any journalist who wants to criticize Trump or promote flimsy Russia conspiracy theories on the platform, and generally creating pressure and inertia to remove anything in the article that might hurt Biden's election chances. Journalist Matt Taibbi has his own article out on Greenwald's resignation, 
which contains more information on the email exchanges and which is very much worth reading. More revealing than the emails is the information which Greenwald shares in his Substack article about his resignation, saying, The Intercept has been deliberately opaque about those who were responsible for the reality winner debacle and the actions they took which led to her arrest when leaking NSA documents to the outlet. Greenwald claims editors rushed the publication of the leaks, quote, because they were eager to, to prove to mainstream media outlets and prominent liberals that The Intercept was willing to get on board the Russiagate train, and says their silence has allowed the blame to fall on him for winner's imprisonment despite his having nothing to do with the ordeal. Greenwald also reveals that The Intercept refused to report on the daily proceedings of the Julian Assange extradition hearing, quote, because the freelance reporter doing an outstanding job was politically distasteful. It's unclear exactly what was meant by this. Greenwald has praised the excellent Assange trial coverage by Shadowproof's Kevin Gostola and Richard Medhurst, now of Press TV, in the past, both of whom say they don't at this time know who he was referring to. Regardless of what he meant, refusal of a media outlet whose motto is fearless adversarial journalism to cover the single most important journalistic freedom case in the world is outrageous on its face. The Intercept editors called Greenwald's criticisms, quote, a grown person throwing a tantrum in a remarkably snarky statement on their website, claiming on what appears to be no basis that their co-founder was, quote, attempting to recycle the dubious claims of a political campaign, the Trump campaign. We have the greatest respect for the journalist Glenn Greenwald used to be, and we remain proud of much of the work we did with him over the past six years, the editors wrote. It is Glenn who has strayed from his original journalistic roots, not The Intercept. These accusations are fully in line with the smears you can read from the blue checkmarked commentariat by typing in Greenwald's name into the Twitter search bar on every given day. Establishment spinmeisters have been painting Greenwald as a closet Trump supporter who stumbled his way into useful idiocy for the Kremlin ever since the award-winning journalist began questioning the establishment Russia narrative. And this statement is plainly both informed by and designed to appeal to acolytes of that smear campaign. Contrary to its claims of adhering to its journalistic roots, The Intercept has in fact been going down the tubes for as long as I've been at this commentary gig. And this next section of this paragraph is loaded with links to supporting material. Its coverage on Syria has been blatant security state stenography. Its published hit pieces on Assange. Its sources keep getting arrested. And it has been promoting Russiagate with all the fervor of any garden-variety corporate liberal rag. So the fact that it has joined with the freakishly unified narrative management campaign on the Hunter Biden story, and is now citing unsubstantiated assertions by U.S. spooks to do so, is not terribly surprising. The Intercept has fallen victim to the same decay as all other outlets past a certain size and funding level. Matt Taibbi, who says he's spoken to, quote, multiple well-known journalists 
who are encountering similar pressures as those Greenwald, Greenwald encountered in the lead-up to the U.S. election, wrote the following in his aforementioned article. Quote, the traditional method of controlling the press, as described by legendary independent journalists like I.F. Stone, was the quiet aside by the boss, a little private talk, where a hint that the reporter seems irresponsible, a little bit radical, would be dropped. Getting the message and fearing for his or her job, the reporter backs off. Or in cases like the Iraq War, run up. The strategic dismissal or unhiring of a big name with the wrong views, like Phil Donahue or Jesse Ventura, make sure the rest of the employees get the message. Greenwald co-founded The Intercept with this exact scenario in mind, building a structure where little private talks with bosses would never happen, and there couldn't be high-profile dismissals for ideological reasons. What he didn't guess at was that even in the atmosphere where managerial interference is near zero, a collective of independent journalists can themselves become censors and enforcers of official orthodoxies. In some cases, journalists will become more aggressive propagandists and suppressors of speech than the officials from whom they supposedly need to be protected. This is what happened with The Intercept. People will cite all sorts of reasons for the Intercept running cover for intelligence agencies and powerful politicians, including its Omidyar funding and the possibility of government infiltration. But I think the primary source of the decay of the Intercept is much more basic. Having large, well-funded news media outlets simply is not conducive to good reporting. Powerful people pour so very much energy into manipulating how the masses think act, and vote, and news reporters are constantly interfacing with that severely polluted stream of information. For this reason, the most heavily propagandized people in the world are those who are responsible for distributing propaganda, namely the news media. As the final guardians of society's incredible shrinking Overton window, reporters are necessarily the group who will be most aggressively pushed within that window. If, as Upton Sinclair says, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it, then surely that is especially true of those who spent the working lives learning what frameworks of understanding helped them ascend to prominence in the sphere of journalism. This would have shaped them long before they arrived at any outlet which purports to promote, quote, fearless adversarial journalism and it would continue shaping them as they interact with fellow journalists. This combined with a dominant plutocrat-funded media system designed to streamline journalistic thought into mainstream establishment orthodoxies creates a kind of conformity conveyor belt that journos get processed through, like the schoolchildren in the video for Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall. The dominant worldview in any collective of journalists is statistically likely to be a mainstream worldview, simply because it's more common by its very nature. Mainstream worldviews are only mainstream because vast amounts of wealth and effort went into shoving them into the mainstream by sheer force for the benefit of the rich and powerful, whose kingdoms are built upon the capitalist imperialist status quo. 
If you set out to just hire a bunch of journalists who seem good to you, you're necessarily going to get a lot of people unwittingly promoting the interests of the rich and powerful just by sheer statistical probability. When you take all these factors together and throw them into a large media outlet full of journalists, our primitive impulses to conform with the pack kick in, and the consensus worldview has a much easier time overtaking critical thought even further than it already has. Additionally, when you gather news reporters together in a large outlet, you're going to attract the attention of powerful forces who have a vested interest in controlling how the news is reported. If you can use your leverage and or resources to manipulate how that entire outlet reports, then that's energy well spent. All this to say decentralization is going to have to be the way forward for good critical journalism. There are so few reporters who haven't been digested by the conformity conveyor belt, and if you stick them with the groupthink herd, they're going to be squeezed until they either fall in line or leave. Stop trying to throw the few alive ones in with the zombies and let them go out on their own or in small groups. They'll be much harder to influence, and they can do a lot more damage to the lie factory. I don't know if the best way to make a living doing that is with paid Substack subscriptions like Greenwald and Taibi, or more like my own Patreon-based model, or with some other approach we haven't thought of yet. I just know that every time we cluster up in groups, we bog ourselves down and make ourselves an easy target for the machine. It's clear with the decay of the intercept that we're better off finding ways to let our own skills and insight guide us down our own paths towards this journalism thing, while the conformity drones rot in their well-funded outlets. The audiences will be there. Truth is attractive to people. Serving power is not. Well, it is attractive to people if, if those people are attractive, attracted to money. I don't know that Hunter Biden October surprise shows anything more scandalous than you'd expect for any major U.S. presidential nominee. I do know that the uniform conspiracy of silence and obfuscation from the mass media about it is uniquely scandalous and says bad things about the future of journalism in Western news media. We can't keep doing things the way we've been doing them. Drastic changes are desperately needed. And as mentioned in that article, uh, Glenn Greenwald has published that piece that the uh, Intercept editors rejected without major revisions um, on his own on Substack. So you can go to greenwald.substack.com and find that. And here's a very small excerpt of this long and detailed piece. The publicly known facts augmented by the recent emails, texts, and on-the-record accounts suggests serious sleaze by Joe Biden's son, Hunter, in trying to peddle his influence with the vice president for profit. But they also raise a question, they also raise real questions, about whether Joe Biden knew about and even himself engaged in a form of legalized corruption. Specifically, this newly revealed information suggests Biden was using his power to benefit his son's business, Ukrainian Associates, and allowing his name to be traded on 
while vice president for his son and brother to pursue business opportunities in China? These are questions which a minimally healthy press would want answered, not buried, regardless of how many similar or worse scandals the Trump family has. But the real scandal that has been proven is not the former vice president's misconduct, but that of his supporters and allies in the U.S. media. As Taibbi's headline puts it, quote, with the Hunter Biden expose, suppression is a bigger scandal than the actual story. The reality is the U.S. press has been planning for this moment for four years, cooking up justifications for refusing to report on newsworthy material that might help Donald Trump get reelected. One major factor is the undeniable truth that journalists with national outlets based in New York, Washington, and West Coast cities overwhelmingly not just favor Joe Biden, but are desperate to see Donald Trump defeated. It takes an enormous amount of gullibility to believe that any humans are capable of separating such an intense partisan preference from their journalistic judgment. Many barely even bother to pretend. Critiques of Joe Biden are often attacked first not by the Biden campaign operatives, but by political reporters at national news outlets who make little secret of their eagerness to help Biden win. But much of this has to do with the fallout from the 2016 election. During that campaign, news outlets, including The Intercept, did their jobs as journalists by reporting on the contents of newsworthy, authentic documents, namely the emails published by WikiLeaks from the John Podesta and DNC inboxes, which, among other things, revealed corruption so severe that it forced the resignation of the top five officials of the DNC. That the materials were hacked and that the intelligence agencies were suggesting Russia was responsible does not negate the newsworthiness of the documents, which is why media outlets across the country repeatedly reported on their contents. Nonetheless, journalists have spent four years being attacked as Trump enablers in their overwhelmingly democratic and liberal cultural circles. The cities in which they live are overwhelmingly democratic, and their demographic, large city college-educated professionals, has vanishingly little Trump support. A New York Times survey of campaign data from Monday tells just a part of this story of cultural insularity and homogeneity. Quote, Joe Biden has outraised President Trump on the strength of some of the wealthiest and most educated zip codes in the United States, running up the fundraising score in cities and suburbs so resoundingly that he collected more money than Mr. Trump on all but two days in the last two months. It is not just that much of Mr. Biden's strongest support comes overwhelmingly from the two coasts, which it does. Under Mr. Trump, Republicans have hemorrhaged support from the white voters with college degrees and zip codes with a median household income of at least $100,000. Mr. Biden smashed Mr. Trump in fundraising $486 million to $167 million, accounting for almost his entire financial edge. One Upper West Side zip code 10024 accounted for more than $8 million for Mr. Biden and New York City in total delivered $85.6 million for him, more than he raised in every state other than California. 
wanting to avoid a repeat of feeling scorn and shunning their in their own extremely pro-democratic anti-Trump circles. National media outlets have spent four years inventing standards for election year reporting on hacked materials that never previously existed and that are utterly anathema to the core journalistic function. The Washington Post's executive editor, Marty Barron, for instance, issued a memo full of cautions about how Post reporters should or should not discuss hacked materials, even if their authenticity is not in doubt. That a media outlet should even consider refraining from reporting on materials they know to be authentic and in the public interest because of questions about their provenance is the opposite of how journalism has been practiced. In the days before the 2016 election, for instance, the New York Times received by mail one year of Donald Trump's tax returns and, despite having no idea who sent it to them or how that person obtained it, was it stolen or hacked by a foreign power, the Times reported on its contents. When asked by NPR why they would report on documents when they do not know the source, let alone the source's motives in providing them, Two-time Pulitzer Prize winner David Barstow compellingly explained what had always been the core principle of journalism. Namely, a journalist only cares about two questions. Are documents authentic? And are they in the public interest? But does not care about what motives a source has in providing the documents or how they were obtained when deciding whether to report on them. The U.S. media often laments that people have lost faith in its pronouncements, that they are increasingly viewed as untrustworthy, and that many people view fake news sites as more reliable than established news outlets. They are good at complaining about this, but very bad at asking whether any of their own conduct is responsible for it. A media outlet that renounces its core function, pursuing answers to relevant questions about powerful people, is one that deserves to lose the public's faith and confidence. And that is exactly what the U.S. media, with some exceptions, attempted to do with this story. They took the lead not in investigating these documents, but in concocting excuses for why they should be ignored. As my colleague Lee Fang put it on Sunday, quote, The partisan double standards in the media are mind-boggling this year, and much of the supposedly left independent media is just as cowardly and conformist as the mainstream corporate media. Everyone is reading the room and acting out of fear. Discussing his story from Sunday, Taibbi summed up the most important point this way. The whole point is that the press loses its way when it cares more about who benefits from information than whether it is true. And as we head into the final week of the presidential election in the United States in 2020, it's likely that as the ballots are counted in areas all across the country, that in some of those areas, a recount may be warranted. And certainly if, uh, one side is losing to the other by a small margin. Recounts will definitely be requested. Now, recounts can be a tough thing. If you remember 2016, Jill Stein raised a hell of a lot of money, tens of millions of dollars, 
for her recounts in three states, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and I believe it was Michigan. Um, not all of those recounts were able to move forward for various legal reasons. And uh, maybe you thought all that was done and over. But just yes, just this past weekend, on October 30, former Green Party presidential nominee Jill Stein announced today a major victory for election integrity in litigation arising from the Stein 2016 presidential recount. She celebrated the final defeat in Wisconsin's courts of voting machine vendors' attempts to impose a gag rule on the Stein 2016 recount, which clears the way for Stein's designated expert, J. Alex Halderman, to finally inspect the code that runs many voting machines used in Wisconsin and across the U.S., and disclose conclusions about the software's reliability and accuracy to the public. Quote, this is a major win for voters everywhere, Stein noted. The courts have affirmed that the largest manufacturer of voting machines in the U.S., election systems and software, has no right to suppress the findings of our upcoming inspection of key election software. That inspection will bring much-needed transparency and accountability to the software that counts our votes. This win affirms that corporations cannot shield the voting software we rely on from public scrutiny. With election integrity finally getting some much-needed attention, this is a huge victory for the public's right to elections we can trust that are accurate, secure, and just, said Stein. While celebrating the legal win, Stein bemoaned the voting machine vendor's efforts to tie the case up in court for almost four years, preventing the Stein recount campaign from examining the voting machines before the 2020 election. It's outrageous that voting machine vendors that profit from government contracts have been able to use those profits to buy political influence and prevent scrutiny of their machines through the legal machinations, said Stein. Wisconsin law allows campaigns that file for recounts the right to inspect voting machine, quote, source code, the software that controls the actual counting and tallying of the votes in systems used across the country. Stein is currently involved in discussions to plan the examination with the expert designated to conduct it, Dr. J. Alex Halderman, professor of computer science and engineering at the University of Michigan, and a leading expert in cybersecurity and election technology. This is a unique opportunity for independent scrutiny, said Halderman. The examination will give the public and officials a more complete picture of election security risks and ultimately help make voting more secure. The victory in Wisconsin is the latest in a series of wins for election integrity by the Stein 26 recount and subsequent litigation. In 2018, Stein settled her recount lawsuit with the state of Pennsylvania for a guarantee that the state would replace all paperless voting machines with systems using voter-verifiable paper ballots by 2020, and in 2022 would introduce post-election risk-limiting audits to verify the vote before results are certified. Stein took Pennsylvania back to court to demand decertification of the flawed ES&S ExpressVote XL ballot marking devices. And while the court ultimately ruled against decertification, 
The lawsuit played a role in dissuading several counties from purchasing the machines. Stein's recount litigation in Pennsylvania struck a critical blow against the use of paperless direct recording electronic voting machines and brought up-to-date election integrity practices to a state that has been among the worst in the nation. The 2016 recount in Wisconsin, while it did not include a full-hand recount of all counties that would be needed to truly verify the result, did bring unprecedented transparency to the state's vote-counting process and led directly to the state decertifying of Optech Eagle voting machines that were observed miscounting ballots during the recount in Racine County. The recount produced a mountain of data which was analyzed by academics from MIT, Harvard, and the University of Wisconsin and put to use by election integrity advocates in the Wisconsin Elections Commission to improve practices that had led to one out of every 170 votes originally being miscounted. The recount effort in Michigan, which was quickly halted by a Republican-appointed judge's ruling that Stein lacked standing to compel a recount, exposed glaring problems with Michigan's elections, including an improbable 84,000 undervotes in the presidential race. Faulty machines concentrated in urban precincts that broke down in large numbers, and a provision in state law preventing the recounting of precincts where problems arose. In Detroit, more than 80 ballot scanners broke down on Election Day in 2016, and a whopping 60% of the precincts were ruled ineligible for recounting due to problems with the initial count. While the recount was quickly halted, the national attention on Michigan's failings galvanized the state to replace many of its faulty voting machines shortly after the 2016 election. This is a huge win for the voters everywhere who want elections we can trust, said Stein. Thanks and congratulations are due to our dedicated legal team, particularly Debbie Greenberger and Chris Mueller, in Wisconsin's litigation, as well as Ilan Mazel in Pennsylvania's and the thousands of people who supported the recount as donors and volunteers. This win for democracy belongs to all of us. And finally for this episode is a piece published at commondreams.org. This is written by Jessica Corbett. Federal court ruling in Rhode Island suit targeting polluters called more evidence of the momentum behind climate accountability cases. In a major win for advocates of making fossil fuel giants pay for devastating climate impacts of their products, a federal appeals court ruled Thursday that Rhode Island's historic lawsuit against oil and gas companies should proceed in state court, where it was originally filed in July 2018. While there has been a fast-growing wave of climate lawsuits filed this fall, Rhode Island was the first state in the country to sue dirty energy giants, including BP, Chevron, ExxonMobil, and Shell, seeking to hold them accountable, quote, for knowingly contributing to climate change and causing catastrophic consequences to Rhode Island, our economy, our communities, our residents, our ecosystems. Rhode Island Democratic Attorney General Peter Nerona, who took over the suit from his predecessor, explained after a district court issued a similar ruling last year, the quote, The state's lawsuit contains no federal question or cause of action. Rather, 
contains only state law causes of action regarding damage to Rhode Island's resources that are better suited to resolution in the state courts. With its ruling on the Ocean State's case Thursday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit now joins the Fourth, Ninth, and Tenth Circuits in ruling that climate damages lawsuits brought against big oil under state law belong in state court, the Center for Climate Integrity noted in a statement. Big Oil has failed once again to move a climate damages case out of state court where the companies are terrified of being held accountable for their deception, declared CCI Executive Director Richard Wiles. These fossil fuel companies knowingly caused the climate crisis that is engulfing the nation, and the people of Rhode Island deserve their day in court to hold the industry accountable. Quote, this ruling is more evidence of the momentum behind climate accountability cases, added Wiles, as Big Oil now faces lawsuits for lying about climate change from more than 20 communities across the nation. Since 2017, two dozen local or state governments, including Connecticut, Delaware, Massachusetts, and Minnesota, have filed similar suits, according to CCI. Whether those cases belong in state or federal court is a key fight between governments filing the lawsuits and the energy companies on the defense. The climate docket reported last week on the U.S. Supreme Court agreeing to weigh in on the city of Baltimore's case against fossil fuel companies to, quote, decide if appellate courts can review certain lower court rulings related to whether a case will be heard in federal or state court, as the report explained, quote, Nearly all of the dozens of cases filed against the industry alleging it should be held accountable for its role in the climate change are wrestling with this issue of jurisdiction. The companies are fighting fiercely to have them heard in federal courts, which have traditionally punted climate-related cases to the legislative and executive branches of government. The municipalities want them heard in state courts, where they were filed alleging violations of state laws and where they believe they are more likely to win. While the High Court will not address the merits of Baltimore's case, whether the fossil fuel companies should pay for the damages caused by climate change, caused overwhelmingly by the burning of their products, the outcome of their jurisdiction decisions could have major implications for nearly all of the climate change-related cases filed since 2017. Any of the cases that are currently on appeal or that there's no recent appellate decision on could potentially be affected by this, said Sean Hecht, co-executive director of the Emmett Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the UCLA Law Environmental Law Clinic. However, citing this year's wave of suits, Hecht added, the fact that there have been new recent cases filed means to me that people are just moving ahead with these cases despite the procedural hurdles. These hurdles have been there since the beginning. And uh, one of those hurdles is has been has been cleared in Rhode Island, but more of those hurdles are still in the way. And that'll just about wrap up this episode of Howie 2020. And as we are in the election week and election day here in the U.S. is on November 3rd, that'll almost wrap up this whole election season. 
which will mean I'll have to consider wrapping up this podcast. This podcast started out as Bernie 2016, way back in 2015, and followed the Bernie Sanders campaign and successes and challenges uh, throughout 2016, and then merged and became Bernie 2020 when Trump won the 2016 election and followed Bernie until Bernie dropped out of the race. I still follow Bernie. I don't have as many stories directly about Bernie, uh, but Bernie's been super active in the campaign for Joe Biden and the campaign for dozens and dozens of other candidates down ballot. And that's where I think Bernie's focus and power has been most influential since he dropped out of the uh, the race for the presidency um, in getting a lot of those people more recognition and more support and hopefully having many of them win those races. But that brings me to uh, consider what do I do about a podcast that is at least ostensibly, at least in name, focused on a particular election when that particular election is done. And so I do what any podcaster would do. I create a new podcast in its place. So I will be starting up a new podcast. That new podcast will be called You Can't Be Neutral. That comes from Howard Zinn's quote, You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train. And that will launch soon, so keep your eyes open for that. You can find all episodes of all of my podcasts on movingtrainmedia.com. And you can listen to them playing live 24-7 on movingtrainradio.com. As we end this episode, here is Ryan Harvey with the song, The Climate's Changing. Thanks for listening. Climate's changing, it ain't no joke. Log trucks rolling, plants pumping out smoke. Dried up soil on the clear-cut hills. Kids on the streets popping phetamine pills. The smog's hanging over your head. They say pretty soon we could all be dead, cause it's changing. The climate's changing despite the claims. Toxic waste and acid rain. Empty rivers clear as day. Dead zone floating in the Chesapeake Bay. The oxygen is low. There's a great shellfish bay a while ago, but it's changing. Changing, it's happening fast. Clouds of dioxin and chlorine gas, chemical spills and oil slicks, corporate profit politics, abnormal rates of cancer, babies being born with asthma, cause it's changing. The climate's changing, you can't say it's not. Look at the crossroads strip mine mountaintops. The company's got a big bag of tricks, sitting high above sea level, far from risk. The water's rising up, pretty soon it might just swallow us, cause it's changing. Climate's changing, what you gonna do? 
Keep your eyes shut, just sit it through. Hope you don't live to see the day when the big one hits like the scientists say. Well, we better change our ways, or we might as well just be digging our graves, cause it's changing.